0: Uh, we are in Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. And as you turn there, uh, I just want to share a quick disclaimer about today's passage. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 42 to 50. You'll notice that there's two verses missing. And you know, as a prank, I used to tell when I was in youth ministry and I preached from this passage, I'd tell my students, Can someone read verses 44 and 46 for me? And they'd start panicking, like, oh, I don't want to look like I can't find the verse. Uh, Those verses aren't actually there. Um, If you look in your Bibles, most Bibles, it'll go from 43 straight to 45, and then from 45 straight to 47. Uh, And if you have a reference for a study Bible, you'll know that where verses 44 and 46 are meant to be, uh, what was there was verse 48 being repeated. So verse 48 would appear in verse 44 and 46, And the reason it's left out in our Bibles is because the earliest Greek manuscripts of Mark's Gospel didn't have verses 44 and 46. Um, And what's assumed by scholars is that later scribes that copied the New Testament and Mark's Gospel deliberately added verses 48 into 44 and 46 to emphasize um, what was being conveyed the severity of the message that Jesus was kind of trying to convey. So it it is one of those discrepancies uh, in the New Testament. However, it doesn't actually change the message. Um, If anything, by adding the verses in, it enhances the message, but doesn't actually change the big idea of the passage. So on that note, I'm going to read from verses 42 to 50. And the Word of God reads, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, Tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for Mark's gospel as it's available to us today. We thank you for the integrity of the scholars that translated our English translations, that didn't try to hide discrepancies, but that they were transparent in where the discrepancies lay. We thank you for the consistency of the translations that we have. And Lord, as we unpackage Mark 9, verses 42 to 50, it is a heavy, heavy message from the Lord Jesus. And Lord, we pray to be able to approach this message with humility, with clear self-examination, so that the Holy Spirit can have his way with us in areas that need to be repented of, that need to be purged, And that require transformation. Lord, we submit our life and our character to be moulded by your hands. And Lord, I preach this sermon not being exempt or above this message, but also as an individual that sits under the authority of your word. So as you shape the FLM members, I pray that you would shape myself as well. And may you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I mentioned last week that I grew up in a very stereotypical uh, Asian household. I had a, a tiger mom who uh, was very academically focused, very big on education. Um, during the school holidays, my, I mentioned that my mom would drop my sister and I off at Ermington library, which was in the middle of nowhere, still in the middle of nowhere. Um, And she'd drop us off with a a sandwich and a juice popper uh, at 8 a.m. And drop us off and say, see you at 6 p.m. And then we'd just be stuck in the library, my sister and I. Uh, They were very big on education. And I would read books in the library and then afterwards borrow books, take it home, read it at home. But then one day, I found out about gaming consoles. Uh, and particularly back then, now we have PlayStation and Xbox. I don't know if Xboxes are still around, but back then there used to be a console called the Sega Master System. You guys probably don't know. Most of you guys probably don't know what it is, but the older guys know what the Sega Master System was. and when I remember when I first found out about this, I was like, "I have to have this. This is the greatest thing ever. And I begged my dad, I was like, please, can I get a SEGA Master System? And my dad promised me, I will get it for you if you get straight A's in your next report card. I didn't get straight A's on my next report card. And I remember I was so devastated. I saw my report card and my heart just sank. And as I went home, my dad was like, did you get straight A's? No, I didn't. (laughs) Too bad. (laughs) And I don't know if it was out of pity because during those summer holidays, I just sat at home. I was just so depressed that I didn't get that Sega. And maybe it was out of pity. He went and purchased it. He bought the Sega Master System. Uh, He couldn't afford to get us any games, but there was a a default game that was built in called Alex the Kid. And I remember my sister and I, that's all we did during the summer holidays. We played Alex the Kid. And my sister and I, After that, you know, we got the SEGA Master System. We developed a passion for gaming. We loved playing games. Um, But my mom, like I mentioned, was a tiger mom. And she didn't like that we were distracted from our studies. And my mom would always threaten, I will smash that SEGA Master System if you allow your studies to be distracted. And so I deliberately started at least putting on the facade of studying. I'd make sure that there'd be a set period of time in full view of my mom where she would see me with a book sitting at the table, like looking immersed, like pretending to be immersed in a book. But my mom knew. She knew I was distracted. She knew as I was reading a book or going through like a, a mass exercise that my mind was somewhere else. My mind was like, how can I improve the way I play Alex the Kid so that I can finish the game? Because back then, there was no saving of the game. It's just if you died, you had to, just start, had to start from the beginning. It's like, how can I be the first out of my friends to finish to clock this game and tell my friends how the game actually ends? And then one, one day, my, my mom dropped my sister and I off at Ermington Library. And I remember I read that day, and all I could think about was, I want to get home at 6 p.m., quickly have dinner, and jump on, which is what I did. Went to Ermington Library, play, uh, read you know, as many books as I could, came home, scoffed down my dinner as quick as I could, and I jumped on the TV, and I pressed the button to switch it on, and it wouldn't switch on. What's going on? like banging the TV, like back then you pull the cartridge out, you blow on it, did everything. It wouldn't turn on. And so I checked the back of the TV and I realised all the cables had been cut to my Sega Master System. That was probably one of the most heartbreaking moments of my childhood. And I ran into the kitchen, Mom, what happened? She's like, I did it. Like, Why? Why would you do this? She said, because you were distracted from your studies. I warned you. But I was studying. She goes, you and I both know that you weren't studying. And the problem isn't that you're not putting in enough hours. The problem is that underpinning all that was that you were distracted in your heart and in your mind. You weren't focused on your studies because all you could think about was playing on your SEGA master system. Uh, Later on, as I went into high school, um, other games came out that caught my attention and captivated me. Uh, Those games were Starcraft and Counter-Strike. To give you an idea of how much Counter-Strike I played, on the the domestic servers in Australia, I think my ranking was top 50 in Australia. That's how much I played. And again, I came home one day to jump on Counter-Strike. And the cables to my computer had all been severed. And I was horrified, not because I couldn't play Counter-Strike, but it's like, how am I meant to do my assignments? And my mom said, go to Ermington Library and use the computers there. And back then, the computers weren't sophisticated like they were now. They weren't computers and, you know, Microsoft Word like you could use now. I remember I went to the library. I was like, is there a computer that I can use where I can type out my assignment? And I remember the librarian, sweet old lady, said, we don't have a computer, but we have this typewriter. <laughs> and I remember from year 7 all the way to year 10, I typed my assignments out on this tick, 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 tick clink, tick, 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 tick. And I did every assignment on a type, an old-fashioned typewriter. Because my mom recognized that the problem that needed to be addressed wasn't to study more, but to cut out the root cause, to identify and cut out the underlying problem. And that was my fascination and addiction to gaming. And that's something we're going to talk about today, the underlying problem. Now, last week we saw that as Jesus began his journey, Remember part one, part two? Part one was around Galilee. Part two was his journey towards Jerusalem. And we saw that as Jesus began his journey towards Jerusalem, his once public ministry would start to become more and more private. His teaching ministry would be less public and more focused and tailored towards training up and equipping his disciples. He taught them last week, if you remember, that if you want to be first in God's kingdom... You have to be last of all and servant of all. That your status in God's kingdom isn't defined by how much glory and honor other people give you, but rather how much glory and honor you give to other people by being last and by serving your neighbor. That it wasn't about status, but about service. And so today's passage is a continuation of what we looked at last week. And I'm not gonna lie, I mentioned it earlier the content of this passage is very, very heavy. I hope it's heavy. I hope it's convicting. And we, including myself, have to approach this with a humble heart. And I just want to share that I'm not doing this to single out one person. This is just what the passage is about. Now, there's three movements to today's passage. And so instead of three applications or three points in the so what at the end. Um, I'm just going to tell you where the movements are as we go verse by verse. And I want to infuse some applications as we identify these movements. And I want you to have a genuine think about your own life. Think about what this passage means as a lens looking into your own life. Now, the first movement begins in verse 42. Jesus says in verse 42, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. It's a very savage statement by the Lord Jesus. You know, last week we saw that Jesus, you know, when he referred to, to little children, Uh, I explained that it was a play on words. The language that Jesus spoke back then was Aramaic and the word for little children was the word talia. And it's a word that has different connotations. It can mean little children or it can mean servants or slaves. And so this, this reference to little children was a play on words by Jesus knowing that it was interchangeable, not just to mean children but to mean servants as well. Now, in today's passage, in this opening verse, Jesus refers to little ones. And again, he's not just talking about children. And this time, he's not just talking about servants either. But little ones in verse 42 is also a reference to new believers. Guys that are new to the faith. It's also a reference to people that maybe have been walking with Jesus for some time, but their faith isn't where it needs to be. They're weak, they're struggling with their faith. And Jesus is saying that if you cause one of these guys to stumble, if you're the cause, the root cause of this person stumbling in their faith, he says it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown in the sea to drown. Now, if you're wondering what a millstone is, Uh, It was a giant cylindrical stone. Um, Think of, do you know, lifesavers, the the lollies? Think of a giant concrete lifesaver. That's what a millstone was. And with a millstone, it would be placed on a base, and what they would use it for is to grind grain. So if you ever went to Sunday school and you... You learned about the story of Samson, how when they captured him, they cut his hair, gouged his eyes out, and they got him to push a millstone because it was so big and heavy that it was a stone that was designed to be turned by a beast, as in like a donkey or a horse. And it was used to grind grain. It was an incredibly huge and heavy piece of rock. And so if you were thrown into the water with something like that tied around your neck, you really had no hope of surviving, would you? And this was actually a method of execution. Jesus is intentional about using this example because it was a method of execution that the Jewish people were familiar with. Because it was used by the Roman government to squash out a rebellion or a revolt led by an individual called Judas the Galilean. Not Judas Iscariot, but Judas the Galilean. This particular individual in about, I think it was about 60 AD off the top of my head, he led a rebellion against the Roman government. And once captured, once his group were captured, Judas the Galilean and all the leaders in his group were executed using this very method. They tied a giant rock to their neck and threw them into the sea. And what the Jewish people would come to remember is walking past the sea, as the bodies would start to decompose, it would float up. And so you'd see these decomposing feet just floating in the water like a helium balloon. It was a horrendous sight to behold, but it was nonetheless a sight that Jewish people had become familiar with. It was was a terrible way to die. And so Jesus, knowing that this memory was fresh in their minds, gives them a grim warning that this kind of a horrifying fate, this would be better. Than for you to cause someone else to stumble in their faith, for you to cause another individual to sin. And the Greek word for uh, to stumble or to cause someone to stumble, it's that Greek word scandalizo, is where we get the word scandalous or scandal from. And Pastor John MacArthur actually gives four helpful ways, he classifies it in four ways uh, which a person might cause another person to stumble. It's not an exhaustive list, but I actually found it very helpful. And the first way he says that people cause others to stumble is through direct temptation. And direct temptation is where you cause another person directly and at times willfully to fall into sin. This could be encouraging someone directly to engage in illegal or sinful behavior, whether it's cheating Stealing or coercing another person to engage in sexual sin with you? This is direct temptation. A second way that John MacArthur shares is indirect temptation. This is not so much where you get someone to do something directly, but it could be that that person falls into into sin by your lack of affection, love, grace, or forgiveness. I think if you've grown up in the Korean church, a lot of people have trauma and scars from seeing people withhold love, grace, and forgiveness from each other. It's what causes so many chasms in different churches around the world because people are refusing to demonstrate love, grace, and mercy. Third way is your behavior. And my behaviour, like I said, I'm not exempt from this. And this is not so much about you interacting with people directly. But it's more about what people can observe about your character as an image bearer of Christ, as a disciple and follower of the Lord Jesus that causes them To stumble. It might not be something you do to them directly or indirectly, but it's what they see in you as an individual. Character traits that you exhibit. For example, I am married to my wife June, whom I love very much, and I will go most places together with her. However, if any of you saw me making it a habit of being alone in my car, alone with another woman in this ministry, even if it's just to drive her home, that would and should, rightly, cause people to stumble. Right? You guys are worrying. It should. It's not a, it's not a trick question. It should. If you see me or any other leader Alone in another car, or not another car, our car with another woman. No one else in the car late at night. Even if it's like with an honest reason, I'm going to drive her home. It should be cause for concern. I might not have done anything with that woman, but that's unacceptable. Because it's not only disrespectful to my wife, it's disrespectful to God and it causes a stumbling block for other people number 4 and this is this one convicted me the most failing to stimulate other people to righteousness god gives us the context of community to spur everyone on to spur each other on and to ignore what the author of hebrews says in hebrews 10:24 hebrews 10:24 reads let us consider How to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This is a command from the author of Hebrews. Let's consider, let's brainstorm, let's be intentional about thinking of ways that we can get other people to grow in their faith. Jesus says, causing a new believer or someone who's weak in their faith to fall into sin, that this is devastating so devastating it would be better to die a gruesome physical death than to lead another person to their spiritual death it's a pretty grim way to begin a sermon isn't it but it was in this savage way that Jesus begins his special specialized apostles training session in today's passage It was relevant to the apostles in the Gospel of Mark, and I genuinely believe it is relevant to God's people today. It's something we should be thinking about carefully. I mentioned at the beginning of my passage that this will be a very heavy message, and it's important to approach it with humility. Because when we feel conviction, it's easy to become defensive, apprehensive. But we need to ask, every verse that we look at today, we have to ask, is this true of me? Is anything that we look at, is this true of me? Because if it is, then we have to lay these things down before the Lord and ask the Spirit of God, To help us repent, help us purge, and help us wage war against this aspect of our character. This is what spiritual warfare is. You know, when we think of spiritual warfare, we think of war, fighting a war out there. Spiritual warfare is fighting a war within you. And it's not pretty. It's ugly. It's painful. And it hurts. But that's what war is so verse 42 serves as the introduction to this passage. And if verse 42 was the first movement of today's passage, then we see the second movement or transition from verses 43 to 48. I'm going to read this in one go. I'm going to take a sip of water. I'm not sure if this is... I'm hoping this is clean water. All right, Verses 43 to 48, it reads, And if your hand causes you to sin quenched. If the first verse, the first movement in verse 42 was a command to not cause, cause others to stumble, then 43 to 48 is a command to ensure that we do our best, that we don't stumble. And two disclaimers I have to make before unpackaging 43 to 48. The first is that hell is real I know to some of you that's not that groundbreaking. Um, but there is a false doctrine that circulates around the church that teaches that hell is just an abstract thing and that it's not real. Uh, fortunately, unfortunately, scripture says otherwise. Um, the hell described in today's passage is actually a word, Gehenna, in the Greek, and it's transliterated from the Hebrew word, Gehinum. Uh, um, the Valley of Hinnom, uh, which was south of Jerusalem, and back in the Old Testament, if you read uh, through the Old Testament in Israel's history, uh, there was a very, very there were multiple dark periods in Israel's history. There was one particular dark period uh, where they were immersed in the worship of the false god Molech. and the way the Israelites worshipped Molech was by sacrificing their children in a fire. Um, it was horrifying burnt they burnt their children to death, and King Josiah uh put a stop to this. he destroyed these places of sacrifice, and he turned it into uh, i love this he turned this false altar to this false god into a giant rubbish heap um, <laughs> what a power move for a king he turned it into a giant burning rubbish heap where he just bought brought out all like the most disgusting Garbage, And it would be a 24-7 fire. Like it was a fire pit that burned 24-7. It's not like, oh, let's start the fire again. 24-7, everyone knew 24-7 there's going to be fire going on there. And they brought out dead animals to be burned here that were like decomposing. Um, And they brought out the bodies of dead criminals to burn on this rubbish heap. And so Gehenna uh, became a symbolic, the name began, being used symbolically to define a 24-7 fire where the most depraved and disgusting objects were sent to. Um, And it's a place that just became synonymously used to describe hell. And like I said, hell is real. It is, according to scripture. Um, But hell, I think the doctrine of hell is something that is very absent uh, from today's pulpit. Uh, because some preachers will say that hell and hellfire preaching, it's too old-fashioned, uh, too out of date, uh, not in line with what the gospel is all about, because we want to propagate uh, a God of love, grace, and mercy um, and the cross. I would argue, however, uh, that you can't really have grace and teach grace effectively if you don't talk about hell. Um, And to drive that point home, uh, scholars make the note that no one talks about hell in scripture more than Jesus. Um, And if Jesus spoke a lot about it, then the only logical conclusion is that it has to hold a prominent place in our theology and our understanding of the gospel. So that's the first disclaimer. Hell is real. Second disclaimer. uh, This passage is not commanding or teaching anyone to mutilate their bodies when they struggle with sin. Um, Sadly for a lot of individuals throughout Christian history, they misconstrued this, they took it a bit too far and misconstrued the words of Jesus and self-mutilation became their primary means of fighting sin. Uh, I read horror stories about Catholic monks that would be walking down the street and if they saw an attractive young lady they would throw themselves into a thicket of thorn bushes. And they'd be stuck like, ah. And they'd do this so that the pain would take their mind off the woman. It's admirable in a sense, crazy in another, because that's not what Jesus was talking about. Um, one of the early church fathers, Oregon of Alexandria, one of the greatest early church scholars. Um Tradition has it that he castrated himself. He cut off his testicles in an attempt to fight his internal battle with sexual sin. Um, Unfortunately, after he cut it off, he realized it did nothing to help him fight his urges. Um, What a waste that was. (laughs) Um, But that wasn't what Jesus was calling us to do. What Jesus is saying, what, what he's doing here, it's what's called hyperbole, exaggeration. It's a a literary technique designed to make a point. Jesus isn't talking about self-mutilation, but what's called spiritual mortification. Not the cutting off of a body part, but the cutting off of harmful practices that lead to sin. And when Jesus talks about the feet, the hands and the eyes, like I said, not literal, it's symbolic because the hands, feet, and eyes represent the parts of the human body that give us capacity for life. For example, your hands. You do stuff with your hands. Your hands represent what you do. What do you do with your feet? You move from place to place. So when he talks about feet, he's talking about the places that you go. And your eyes, you see. With your eyes. So when he's talking about sight, he's talking about what you see. And so Jesus isn't commanding us so much to be violent against our physical bodies, but he's commanding violence against sin, violence against what you do, violence against where you go, and violence against what you see. He's commanding violence and a waging of a war against sin. Because self-denial and engaging in spiritual warfare according to Jesus, to go through that painful process is far better than to spend an eternity in Gehenna, in hell. And the way to wage war against sin is by cultivating a healthy practice and routine of cutting out unhealthy practices and routines from our life. And I think that's something that's very foreign to us today. Because we live in a culture where it's just like, if it feels good, do it. If it brings you joy and happiness and some form of satisfaction, it can't be bad for you, could it? And sometimes the unhealthy practices in and of themselves aren't actually sinful. But then we take it to a place where it's no longer helpful. And then it becomes the spawning place for sinful Behaviour. I'll give you one example. I've counselled a lot of people that had really, really extreme addictions to pornography. And as I counselled them, I realised and they realised that the pornography addiction in itself wasn't the problem. It's not like this addiction just popped out of nowhere and ta-da! You're one of mine now. But if we examine their life, we find that this unhealthy practice or sinful behavior was preceded by something. It was preceded by this person spending endless hours scrolling through the internet, scrolling through social media, especially when they had nothing better to do. They weren't using the internet for any particular reason. It's just mindless scrolling, and then they end up in this place And what Christ calls us to do, because social media and the internet in and of themselves aren't bad things, but it can lead to unhealthy practices. And what Christ calls us to do is to take drastic action. Cut it off. Cut off this unhealthy practice. I remember before I became a Christian, I became a Christian at 21. I started working for the Commonwealth Bank at 18. And I remember every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, there was a bar in the city called the Privilege Bar. Some of you guys might remember it. It doesn't exist. If you remember it, it shows how old you are. Because I don't think it's it's around anymore. And after I became a Christian, I used to go there every Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'd go Thursday, come into work hungover on Friday, and then spend Saturday recovering. And then if I recovered enough, I'd go there again Saturday night. And it was just something that all of my work colleagues did. But after I became a Christian, I realized whilst having a drink in and of itself might not be a simple thing, this environment is not a spiritually healthy place for me to be in. It's very unwise for me to frequent a place like this. And so I cut it out of my life. I remember when I went to Korea to date, like, initiate a relationship with my wife. And we went on a date. She wanted to show me different places in Korea. Uh, She took me to this place called Itaewon. Uh, Some of you guys know it. Um, And as I looked around, I just saw just drunk people everywhere. Drunk young people everywhere. No modesty in the way they dressed and I could smell marijuana everywhere I went. And I turned to my wife and I said, we need to get out of here. She didn't understand what the big deal was because she wanted to try this nice restaurant that she felt like she'd found on Google Maps. Like this is like a very nice view. I was like, no, 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 we got to get out of here. And I remember I ruined our date night that evening because my wife had it all planned out because I, I don't know anything about Korea. She had this evening planned out. we we'll go here, then here, then here. I'm like, we're getting out of it. There's no discussion about it. We're getting out of here. Christ calls us to drastic action in cutting out unhealthy practices. It was the message of Christ to the apostles in Mark 9, and it's God's message to us today in his living word. And like I mentioned earlier, you know what? It's not easy. It isn't. It wasn't easy trying to explain to my wife why we have to get out of here and ruin the evening that we'd had planned. It wasn't easy not going to the privileged bar anymore and trying to explain to my friends why I can't drink with them there anymore. Why is it difficult? Part of the reason it's difficult is because sin is pleasurable. It really is. Sin feels good. It does. That's why the process of cutting off not only sin, but unhealthy practices to sin, that's why it's such a painful thing, isn't it? But that's what discipline is. When the Bible calls disciples to discipline, it often means enduring pain. And to think that you don't have discipline with discipleship, that those things don't go hand in hand, that's just foolish. Even the words sound similar, discipline, discipleship. And so Jesus doesn't shy away from the fact that it's a difficult process. That's why he uses the metaphor, the violent, gruesome metaphor of cutting off your hands, your feet, and gouging your eyes out. Because sometimes it's extremely painful to wage war against sin. But Jesus says this is a 100% absolute necessary part of discipleship and following Jesus. Why? Well, we find out why in Movement 3, verses 49 and 50. It says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, salt has had a lot of different meanings over the years. Nowadays, to say something someone is salty usually means that they're like bitter and upset. I'm saying is that right? Yeah um, But salt throughout scripture, it has a different context. For example, uh, if you were to ask a jew or a person of Israel in the Old Testament, you know, salt and fire, um, they would immediately think to Leviticus 2.13 because God commands for grain offerings to be seasoned with salt. Uh, Every grain offering has to be seasoned with salt before it's offered or sacrificed to God. And so, you know, it can be said that the idea of being seasoned with salt is to become what Paul refers to in Romans 12, a living sacrifice, That's what discipleship is, to be salted with fire. Is to be salted or seasoned with this idea of sacrifice where we pledge our allegiance to a suffering, serving Messiah, following in his footsteps. But then Jesus uses salt in another context, in verse 50. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The other role of salt, not just in the New Testament, but throughout history, was that it was used to preserve food. That's why if you find in spam, I, I love spam, I ate spam growing up. If you look at the sodium content of spam, spam, there's so much salt in it. And that's what gives it a, a long shelf life. Because what salt does is it removes water from a particular food, and by removing any moisture, it actually removes the ability for bacteria to grow. makes it impossible. Um, And so what Jesus is commanding in verses 49 and 50 is that as disciples follow the suffering servant Messiah, we're called to be a preserving influence in our families, our churches, and our communities. Christ wants us to cultivate saltiness, Holiness, purity, to live lives seasoned with the salt of God's love and righteousness. And that's what Movement 3 is about preserving and growing in holiness so that we can be a church that preserves the image of God in this fallen world. And so the question arises. How can I uphold movement three in today's passage effectively? How can I be the preserving influence in this world? And the answer is movements one and two that we looked at. Movement one, ensure that you live a life that is careful to not cause other people to stumble. Be very careful with your words and your actions, especially with how you treat people within this ministry, within church. Because Jesus says, if you mistreat them, if you cause them to stumble, it would be better for you to have a giant rock tied around your neck and be drowned in the sea. Be careful that you do not cause other people to stumble. The second movement, Live a life where you are in the practice of cutting out unhealthy practices. And I know it sounds old-fashioned. It almost sounds Amish, doesn't it? But we're called to this. This is what the Word of God says. This isn't in the Old Testament. This is in the New Testament. This is the life that all disciples are called to. To cut off unhealthy practices to ensure that we don't stumble. Be savage against yourselves. And remember that this isn't easy. It's not meant to be easy. Jesus makes no pretenses that it's easy. But remember that just as your shortcomings and your failures could cause other people to stumble, on the flip side is that if you're very intentional to not cause other people to stumble, if you're very intentional to extend love, grace, and mercy in your interactions to your brothers and sisters, if you're very intentional about waging war against sin in your life, this behavior will spur other people on to seek the same, to desire the same. Your holiness matters, not just to other people, but to you. And not just to you, but to ensure that the church becomes the salt of the earth, the preservation of God's presence in this fallen world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're not a God that sugarcoats things, that doesn't pretend that the narrow path is an easy one but you're very transparent about how difficult it is to live a life pursuing pursuing Christ Assuming the identity of discipleship. But we also know that you don't leave us uh, to walk this road on our own. You give us everything we need to equip ourselves to fight this spiritual war. Because you give us yourself. Not just in the person of Christ, but in the person of the Holy Spirit who dwells in anyone that chooses to follow you. And so whilst it is a a balance of us rolling up our sleeves and waging war against ourselves, Lord, we pray that we would do, do this and embark on this journey hand in hand with the Holy Spirit so that we can truly become the salt of the earth, that we can truly spur one another on the taste of your goodness and it's in Jesus name we pray amen